You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, October the 29th. I'm in Newmarket today where it is blustery and wet. Hopefully will not be blustery and wet in Del Mar next week, where the shows will be coming from as of Tuesday. And nor will it be, I'm sure, in Flemington and news of the Melbourne Cup and the possible doubtful participation of Spanish Mission coming from Jay McGrath very shortly. But thoughts first of all must turn to jump racing, a down royal this weekend, the James Nicholson Wines chase, new dimension added to this yesterday with the news that Gordon Elliott and owner Michael O'Leary have insisted that their jockeys, Jack Kennedy and Davy Russell, ride for them this weekend meaning that they cannot take the rides on the Henry de Bromhead pair, Manella Indo, the Gold Cup winner, and the former Elliot inmate, Envoy Allen. Both of those horses will be ridden by Rachel Blackmore. There were more than a few eyebrows arched at this news yesterday. It seems to take a lot of people by surprise. Rishi Passad is with me. Should it have taken us by surprise, Rishi? And is it indeed a big deal? It's a bigger deal now that it's in the media and people having, racing fans are having a say on it. Um, I think if you were looking at it Strictly from an employer employee's point of view, I don't see a major issue in Gordon Elliott, who employs or has an agreement with Jack Kennedy and uh, Davy Russell to, to ride for him. I don't see an issue with him uh, putting his foot down and saying, look, I've got horses running. We have this agreement. We have this deal. You ride for me. Um, I understand the implications for those riders that they miss out on, on good opportunities, but it's not as if they're, they're missing out on good opportunities all the time. This is a one-off situation. Um, yes, it's a Gold Cup winner for, for Jack Kennedy in particular. I guess there are other implications that we can read into the situation as well. Lucky, you know, the fact that obviously uh, Envoy Allen in particular was a horse that was trained by uh, Gordon Elliott. It's now moved to Henry de Bromhead. Chibley Park removed their horses from uh, Gordon Elliott. As a consequence, there's perhaps a bit of residue from, from that situation. Um, so the fact that Gordon Elliott has uh, enforced uh, the relationship or the agreement to, to, to be uh, handled in such a manner suggests that maybe there's a little bit of, a, of an edge to it. But again, that's only an implication. That's only a reading uh, from, from an outsider's point of view. From uh, Gordon Elliott's point of view, I can see entirely why he's done that. And it's hardly as if the horses that uh, Jack Kennedy and Envoy Allen aren't going to ride aren't going to be ridden by top class riders. Uh, whether it's uh, you know a, a Rachel Blackmore or whoever, it's, it's absolutely you're talking. We're talking about the very best riders. So personally, I don't think it's that big a deal. Um, but I can understand why people are making uh, a little bit more of yeah. it because of the people involved. Yeah, high-profile people, high-profile horses, and the season's just starting. I think you could sort of split it into a, into a sort of couple of parts. This, first of all, the the, the Delta work against Manella Indo. Delta work is a horse that Jack Kennedy's been inextricably associated with through his career, and mm. it's not as though this notion that he's the only one who can get a tune out of it is a new notion. This has been this 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 particular tune has been played by uh, Gordon Elliott and the O'Leary's for, for years that Jack Kennedy's really the only person who knows how to ride the horse. So I get why they want him. He is still their their number one gold cup horse in the yard. So I, I don't see any issue with that at all. I, I think the the Russell issue not letting him ride Envoy Allen, maybe that's a bit more personal insofar as Envoy Allen is a, a horse that, you know, in, in extreme circumstances has left the stable. 
Exactly. Uh, and I think that would be the one that if we were to discuss the, the as you say, the, the, the Delta work situation is one that's extremely understandable, considering that his best ever performance came under what I think Gordon Elliott termed as you know, a brilliant ride from Jack Kennedy when he won the Irish Gold Cup season before. Um, and that is understandable. The Envoy Allen one is a little bit uh, more interesting in all the players involved, whether it's, you know, Chievely Park, Davy Russell, Gordon Elliott, etc. And the fact that it was a, a Gordon Elliott trained horse at one point. And there must be, there must be. I mean, Envoy Allen, Gordon Elliott spoke so highly, uh, so affectionately about Envoy Allen. So it's understandable if there is a little bit. And again, we are only speculating that this is the case, but it, could, it would be understandable if there's a little bit of hurt still involved from Gordon Elliott's point of view uh, that Envoy Allen was taken away. We all know that um, the situation that unfolded in the spring uh, has, has clearly affected him, which is understandable. But, you know, he's 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 repeatedly said that what happened in the spring, he's, he's sorry for. Um, it's a situation that I, I suspect, you know, will keep cropping its head up in the lead up. Uh, to the rest of the or as the rest of the season unfolds, because I think you know there'll be more situations where there'll be little little things that we can imply from things that happen. But uh, again, you know, it's it is still speculation from from people on the outside. Yes, I have a deal of sympathy with Davy Russell, who throughout his recuperation was looking forward to getting back on on Oliver Allen. But on the other hand, he knows that his relationship with uh, Gordon Elliott, I mean, to a lesser extent now the O'Learys, but certainly with Gordon Elliott and somewhat to, to the O'Leary's is, is more important to sort of his continued um, recovery in the saddle and continued success in the saddle than, than one ride on one horse. And that's, that's exactly it. It's a bigger picture. It's not just about one ride. Yes. The one ride is high profile. And on this particular day on, on Saturday, that return of Envoy Allen and indeed uh, Delta work in uh, against um, Fred and Manila Indo, et cetera. Those are big races on the day. But there's a whole season still to play out. Uh, and Davy Russell has to consider the bigger picture and not just one horse, one race. And, and on that point, just on the point of Jack Kennedy, uh, and I'm not I'm not trying to lead the witness here, Rishi, I'm just giving you my opinion. I, I, I think he's the best. And, and I think he's the best by by quite a long way. And, and if, if I had an association with him, I, I can I quite, quite understand why you'd want him on every single horse you can get him on. Well, that's that's a, absolutely an understandable point to make. You know, Gordon Elliott wants, uh, obviously, so you've got Rachel Blackmore attached to Henry de Bromhead, uh, Paul Tandon, injury-free, Willie Mullins, who's Jack, who's Jack Kennedy associated, one of the most talented riders around. Well, if I was Gordon Elliott, I'd want to make sure that I was attached to Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was attached to me and that we had something uh, solid to, to progress with. He is that good. And of course, we banged on about this. What we haven't banged on about who's who's going to win uh, <laughs> the, the, the the down royal race, Manila Indo, Delta Work, Frodon, etc. It's a great race. Throw Galvin in, who's had a run as well, and uh, another of the Gordon Elliott runners, uh, and Ravenhill, who of course also a, a festival winner in the past. Um, I I personally think Frodon will win because I think Paul Nichols will have him cherry ripe. Manila Indo, obviously, I would suspect might need the run again. I'm only guessing. But uh, I think the way the race will be set up with Froden making the running, I think it's possible that he could make all the running and jump them silly. I, I, he, he is capable of that. You saw what he did first time out uh, at Cheltenham last year. You, you fancied him last year, didn't you, first time out, Rich? 
<laughs> I did fancy it first time out last year. Um, Paul Nichols was on the opening show, and before Paul Nichols arrived for the opening show, we had to provide uh, our producer with the twenty-pound challenge selections, and I put Froden up. Um, it was, I think he was about five to one, eleven to two at the time. Uh, uh, anyway, so when we were rehearsing, Paul Nichols had arrived by that time, and in the last segment of the rehearsal. Uh, the £20 challenge selections came up on screen. Paul said to me, you've put Froden up. And I said, yeah, I thought he was well handicapped. I thought he'd win. And he said, uh, I think he might need it today. He might just be a little bit on the tubby side, might just need it. Uh, so I said, oh, uh, t- t- Tim, our producer, I said, Tim, I- I'm going to change my <laughs> my £20 selection. I'm going to put something else in which lost. Uh, obviously, Froden then proceeded to win. So Paul, to be fair to him, rang me on the way home and said, uh, uh, I'm sorry about Froden. Uh, <laughs> he's obviously caught me a little bit by surprise. Um, but on that note, you probably can have a, a few quid on this horse that's running tomorrow, uh, which Julie got beat as well. So, not not a not a good incident. Uh, not a good memory for me. Brilliant. And they they always say trainers are the worst tipsters. In this case, absolutely <laughs> absolutely spot on. And but Froden clearly has got an, an excellent chance against Manila Indo and Co at Down Royal. Right, big race at Weatherby tomorrow is the Charlie Hall chase. Clondor Castle's the second favourite. Trainer Tom George is about to watch his horses work, but he's going to tell me quickly how Clondor Castle's going to run tomorrow, Tom. Yeah, we've been delighted with him. For his, his preparation's been perfect. He's had a couple of trips away. Um, I mean, my concern at the moment is they've been watering and there's, I believe, a of rain up in the north, so I just hope they don't get too much at Weatherby on water ground. But good soft ground would be fine for him, and it's a nice starting point for him for the season. And he just quietly, quietly improved into a pretty good horse at, by the back end of last season. Do you think there is more left in him? I do, actually. I think we had him very, very nice. I don't think he was probably quite as nice to It's the only horse who could go Nothing would have been that horse. So we probably put in a good saying, but I just don't think we were probably quite at our best that day. So I think there's more to come. Is he a horse who can run well fresh? Have you got him right where you want him? Uh, he's always going to improve a bit, but he's, uh, um, he was second in the old row and chase last year. He's a lot more together than he was then. So uh, he's, I think he's there to put in a good show. Someone to ground just doesn't get too deep. Tom George there. Good luck to him with Clondor Castle. Now, important news from Australia. Here is J.A. McGrath. Nick. The next 24 hours are crucial for the Spanish Mission team. Racing Victoria Vets inspected the Melbourne Cup's second favourite today. They found that a swelling in his off four had gone down, but they also detected an infection under the horse's skin. He was sent to the nearby U-Vet Equine Centre, where he underwent a further examination. Racing Victoria Vets say they'll inspect him again tomorrow and then give the verdict on whether he can be declared for the Cup by the acceptance deadline, which will be around 2.30am UK time on Saturday. These are certainly anxious times for Barry Irwin of Team Valor and Gary Barber, the owners, and Andrew Balding, who trains Spanish Mission. And everything had been going so well. When weights for the Cup were published, Spanish Mission looked to have fared pretty well. His weight of nine stones seemed very reasonable, considering he'd run a cracking second to Stradivarius in the Lonsdale Cup, beaten only ahead after a titanic battle all the way up the straight at York. He'd come through his quarantine and the scanner and vet checks in the UK. He travelled well, he'd settled in well, all good until this week, when it appears he's rolled in his box and knocked himself, which has caused the swelling. 
Tony Noonan, the trainer who is looking after Spanish Mission on the ground for Andrew Balding in Melbourne, is confident that Spanish Mission will get the green light to run. But I shouldn't think they'll be getting much sleep overnight at Parkhouse Stables, Kingsclare, as they wait for the vet's report. All that drama aside... This Saturday is arguably the best day of quality racing in Australia. It's Victoria Derby Day in Melbourne. Four Group 1s, including the Derby, a Sprint, a Mile and the Phillies and Mares Group 1. It's always a great day. As in the UK, the critics argue that the Derby over a mile and a half comes too early in the season and there are always queries about the depth in the field. But it's produced some great winners. With a gun stock trained by Mick Price and Michael Kent Jr. rises to greatness remains to be seen, but he's got a staying pedigree and he went to the line very well to win a Group 3 at Caulfield last start. He's my idea of the winner. Could often have two runners, Allegron and Character. For the last couple of years, Sydney have tried to gatecrash the Aussie racing party on this day by running a $7 million race up in Sydney uh, that afternoon. The race is the Golden Eagle over seven and a half furlongs at Rose Hill. It's interesting that Judmont have sent down a horse for the race and he's to stay with John O'Shea in Sydney. He is Maximel, formerly with Sir Michael Stout and a horse who bumped into both Hurricane Lane and Baid in his uh, UK travels this year. We'll monitor his progress very closely. Tuesday is Melbourne Cup Day, which I will preview on this podcast in the next few days. Uh, J.A. McGrath there and Jim's report brought to you in association with HBA Media, leading media rights distributor of worldwide horse racing, including the Melbourne Cup, Royal Ascot, the Saudi Cup, the Breeders' Cup and so much more. Rishi's still with me. Oh, Rishi, this is worrying news, what's happening down under at the moment. Well, I remember, Lucky, when I... <laughs> when I was growing up or going back to the, to the vintage crop days of the Melbourne cup. And I remember that there was this amazing race that had a huge reputation that I had a little bit of interest in, uh, because of the reputation and because of, you know, you've heard of horses like Farlap, et cetera. Um, but I never really paid attention to it on, on, in my, in my world until the likes of vintage crop, uh, and until, uh, the media puzzles and, and the fact that we were or horses trained in, in the UK and Ireland were, were making an effort to go out there. And I feel that we're heading back to that that time where it's it's a very good race for people in Australia. But for us, it's not much of an interest. Uh, I, you know, look down the list of runners for this year's race. Obviously, Spanish mission out. Uh, away he goes out. Um, Twilight payments in there. And it feels like we're, we're back to where we were in the 90s with the Melbourne Cup. It's a very big race for the Aussies, and that's it. Yeah, so what do you think the Australians now need to do? They need to decide where the international runners fit in their plans for the race. In my opinion, uh, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of people over here would agree that over the last decade and a half, the last two decades, the influence or the uh, involvement of international horses has made the race far more than what it was. And I accept that it already is a big race and it was a big race, but it became bigger. Uh, I think that the rules that have been implemented over the last 12 months, understandable where they're coming from, the intent may be good, but the rules that have implemented have gone so far that it's returning to what it was, which is uh, a very good 
Australian race and not a very good international race. And that's where the concern would come for me. What do, what, what do they consider the priority to be? If they consider that they want to hold the race uh, at the very top internationally, then maybe they need to look at the rules again. A couple of interesting stories came out of the British Horse Racing Authority yesterday. One of them was of a, a disqualification of a former assistant trainer for 15 months. Just tell me about this. Yeah, uh, assistant trainer Neil Harris was um, disqualified for 15 months for uh, conduct prejudicial to the sport. Um, he was uh, There was a video uh, that showed him striking a horse uh, schooling uh, at a yard Um he basically tried to explain the situation where the, a horse schooling uh, wasn't doing as or wasn't doing as planned as hoped for. So it was a he as he described it in his defence, uh, an isolated incident. It wasn't the whole picture. Uh, he kept saying that or he said in his uh, in, in the to the BHA panel or to the panel. Uh, that um, his job was to to get the horse to finish on a positive note and get them over the obstacles. Well, striking the horse with a show jumping pole, a wooden show jumping pole, wouldn't be, you would imagine, what anyone would want to do in order to get a horse to do anything. Um, And it's understandable that he's been banned for this period of time. Um, When you consider, you know, just the the act on its own regarding welfare, perception, all that, just the act of, of a horse being struck with a show jumping pole uh, is something that you know, genuinely makes you feel sick to know that you someone's doing that to a horse. So uh, the fact that he's picked up 15 months, you can understand the decision. Yeah, um, strange case. Um, clearly the right decision to ban the tr- former assistant trainer and sort of left you wondered why anyone would do that, but more also why anyone would... Um, want to capture it on video but there you go um, such is the world in which we live um, and the BHA have taken appropriate action John Berry at the British Horse Racing Authority failed to um, have his appeal upheld into the result of a race at Pontefract in which his horse was beaten but it was more than about the result of the appeal this case Rishi wasn't it it was about making a clear point about race riding yes and it, fe- it seems that with more discussions about other subjects the, the rules for race riding and um, the way that riders conduct themselves in a race now is becoming far more of a talking point, leading us to think that really something ought to be done here. You know, <clears throat> even when Paul Hannigan was talking uh, the other day about the, the situation in the weighing room and the way that young riders conduct themselves and the way that senior riders uh, speak to young riders, um, one thing that's been taken out of situations like this is the fact that... Um, intentional interference as opposed to interference etc dangerous riding in a race uh, is becoming far more of a situation that we need to need to address and soon Aidan O'Brien speaks about it or spoke about it after the the matron uh, earlier this year so it is something that continuously keeps cropping up in in its own uh, world but for for different situations uh, with the John Berry case obviously that I know you've discussed it here on the on the podcast about what happened at Pontefract that day um at the time he complained uh that his horse suffered intentional interference the horse that Kevin Stott was riding uh he felt uh, had been intentionally interfered with but actually he withdrew that uh in the in the appeal uh, and the ultimate the u- ultimate decision that that the panel have taken or, or or the the panel came to in the end was that they accepted that John Berry made good points about the way that uh, the race unfolded, um, but they stuck with their decision. Uh, I, I, 
when I when I look back at the race again and what happened on the day, I can understand John Barry's frustration. But given the way that races have been decided over the last 12 months or so, especially, and, and you and I talk, talked about it at the time, I, I couldn't see at the time how the result would be changed by the precedent of the way races are decided. But I do understand John Barry's frustration at the time that I think the thing that annoyed him at the time and indeed anyone watching the race was the fact that that incident and that interference almost passed unnoticed. And I guess that is a major concern. He he mentions the stewards in his uh, in his discussion about it post the post the appeal. He didn't want to lay blame because he felt that they're under pressure uh, for getting races off on time. And when you're under pressure and having to act quickly, mistakes crop up. And that's another aspect of the case mm. at Pontefract involving John Berry's horse that I think ought to be examined as well. But ultimately, I think the right decision was made because it would have been very hard to turn around that that result. Well, Racing and, and Bloodstock lost a, a true titan and a, a huge enthusiast and someone immensely committed to the sport yesterday in, in Harry Beebe, who very sadly died at the age of 83. Anybody who knew anything about Bloodstock knew Harry and knew about his appetite for for life and his commitment to the to the sport his son uh, henry joins me now uh, henry i'm i'm so sorry to hear your news um your father was a, a remarkable man and and will leave a, an in- incredible legacy um just tell us a little if you can about the contribution you feel he he made to the sport well thank you nick i uh, it's very kind of you to say uh, such generous things um Dad, uh, Harry Beebe, was a was a mighty man. Um, he was, as you say, uh, a great enthusiast. He, one of his mantras in life was work hard, play hard, uh, look after people as you would expect to be looked after. Um, when Ken Oliver and Willie Stevenson started Donk the Bloodstock Sales back in 1962, it went slightly better than they probably dared expect, and they needed a good young fella uh, to essentially pick up the mantle and, and, and drive the whole thing forward. And Willie Stevenson knew my grandfather, George Beebe, who was a contemporary of his, who trained well, and therefore knew Harry and approached him and asked him to uh, join the team. And Dad joined Ken and Willie as a partner in 1964 and then really was the driving force for a considerable amount of time. He quickly became, and I, I can say this uh, without fear of contradiction, not just through the rose-tinted spectacles of being his son, he became very quickly one of the most accomplished thoroughbred auctioneers. Um, and just to put that into context, Demi O'Byrne, one of the great bloodstock agents of the last 35 years, sent me a message yesterday. He said this to me before, but he said, Harry was without doubt, and Demi went to every sale all over the world, the best auctioneer he ever saw. He was the consummate professional. He never made mistakes. There was no histrionics. He injected some real speed and pizzazz into the into the art, if it is an art, uh, and really picked up the tempo. And he was an innovator in the bloodstock industry. I mean, breeze up sales hadn't come to Europe until 1977 when DBS uh, held the first breeze up sale in 1977. That was Dad's uh, idea and and driving uh, force behind it. Um, pre-sales show championships before the national hunt sales uh, select session uh, the selection yearling sales um and i think 
there was those things, but I think what there was in Dad that I learned very quickly when, as a child, going around with him and then leaving school and working with him uh, and him mentoring me was that everything he did was done with the utmost transparency and integrity. Um, and he was the champion of the little man. I mean, you can ask a lot of people in the business uh, about their experiences of Harry and of DBS, and it was always that that Harry was one of those people who treated everybody alike, uh, never judged, was always helpful. Um, and there are, you know, there's a noted breeze up man who, in his house that he built, said this is the house that Harry built because he couldn't have done it if he hadn't had the support. There's a gold cup and a grand national winning trainer who would tell you that he wouldn't have stayed in business if it wasn't for the the understanding that that uh, that Harry gave him. Um, and uh, he was. He, he was somebody just was always approachable, had a word for everybody, a smile for everybody. And the other thing that he made sure of was that, yes, DBS was a place to do business and do increasingly good business, uh, but also it was a place where you had a bit of fun. There was always a party. Ken and Willie were, were party men, but and Harry was well able to keep up with them. And he made it a he made it a family. I mean, it's it was a business, but it it was a there was a real good feel to the place. And uh, you know, that's so many people have said to me, "Well, that hasn't been well for a little while." And everybody at all the sales I've gone to in Britain and Ireland and the further afield have asked after him, and they've always said he made it such an enjoyable experience. So that's a rather long-winded way of trying to encapsulate, you know, a fifty-year career. Uh, but he was a he was a mighty mighty man, and as his son and successor in, in the business, I had the greatest mentor, inspiration and teacher that you could possibly want. Henry, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Mick. Henry Beebe on his father, Harry, who died yesterday at the age of 83. Friday, it's global rankings time. James in a minute, but just quickly spin you through say the top 15 because there's quite a lot of relevant horses here to what's coming up in the next 10 days or so. Right, so 15, Zaki, who missed the Cox plate. 14, Tequata Tasso, whose art form has taken a boost or two and has nipped up the placings a couple of pegs. 13's incentivized for Australia, the big, heavy Melbourne Cup favourite, way clearer of the others in the TRC rankings. 12 is True Shan, uh, the top stayer now. 11, Hot Rod Charlie for the Breeders' Cup Classic. 10, Hurricane Lane's done for the year. 9, American Jackie's Warrior will be favourite for the Breeders' Cup Sprint. 8, Nick's Go, big Breeders' Cup Classic contender. 7, Tanawa goes to the $6 million Breeders' Cup Turf. 6 is Australia's Nature Strip, the Everest winner. 5 is Mishrif, Ended the season on rather a low note. Four is Essential Quality, who is a stablemate of uh, Nick's go and will also go for the Classic. Just been announced that he'll retire to Dali next year. Three is Palace Pier, also retiring to Dali next year. Two is Baid. And number one, St. Mark's Basilica, retiring to Coolmore. Retired to Coolmore indeed. James Willoughby is with me. Right, James, America, Australia, Australia first. Incentivized miles clear on these ratings. You've been a massive, massive advocate for how much you enjoy Australian racing in recent weeks. You haven't been enjoying it too much the last couple of days, though. Right, Nick. So we have to get this, make this clear here. In that I think Incentivise carries not just the hopes of his supporters and his connections, but this formerly great race as well. And I use that term advisedly. Clearly, the Avelbon Cup will retain its status locally. But these protectionist measures, and that's what they are, these protectionist measures 
are going to severely dent the reputation of the Melbourne Cup on the global stage. As a handicapper, I would expect that the computer rating for this race will come out six to seven pounds lower than normal, unless Incentivize runs away with it. And that's why I'm focusing on him as carrying the hopes, really, of a race on his shoulders. James, Incentivize is clearly a, a very good horse by anybody's standards. You, from what you're saying, it sounds as though you don't think he's just got to win. He's got to, to win easily. Because his figure dictates, his performance level dictates that that's what he should do. Now, can he do it over two miles in a big field with all the normal variables of the Melbourne Cup? That's the question for him. And that's when we see the true competitiveness and standing of a horse on the global scale. He's already world number 13. If he delivers, even though he's supposed to win on the figures, if he delivers, then he's going to really shooting probably into the top six or seven in the world, possibly even higher, depending on the style he does it. But what I guess guess the race doesn't want is a kind of heads and necks finish with perhaps a horse who is patently below the standard that that would have have really been able to withstand Mm. a European challenger. That's the point, isn't it? The point is, yes, you you can make it difficult for the European challenges to go there because people don't like the parade of kind of European uh, winners. But the cost of that is that people are going to perhaps look at your race and just say it isn't as good as it used to be. And that's the thing, isn't it, about all races. We don't just compare them with their entire history. We tend to compare them with their recent past. And incentivizers figures say that he should win this cup. And he should win it, as the betting suggests, as his rating suggests, by a clear margin. If he delivers, I believe that all will be well for the Cup. And maybe future years can see things be made perhaps more logical for European challenges to get to the hoops. Just an Australian footnote, State of Rest, the Cox Plate winner, has uh, nipped up to position number 40 in the rankings. Amazingly, only two spots behind snowfall who's ended the season in in ignominy james who'd have thunk it yeah who the, how the mighty have fallen really and it, 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 state of rest is a very interesting horse he, he's uh saratoga derby win of course now that you watch it knowing that actually he's a fair bit better than that you can see that in the run can't you you know he basically just ran for half a furlong and took three or four lengths off the field there and then in the cox plate he received a tremendous ride i thought but he showed battling qualities. Whether the runner-up should have been given the race or not, I'm not sure. But um, anyway, it was a good finish to a good race. Uh, the Cox Plate was of a good standard, not of a world-class standard. 120 is our figure for that. And that's basically Group 2 quality on the global stage. Uh, so, again, as a preface to what we might expect to see from this Melbourne Cup, quality a little short, excitement very high. It's a matter of which you want. All right, Breeders' Cup, James, one of your favourite meetings of the year, certainly one of mine, and um, we've got a lot of Breeders' Cup entrants in the top 10, 15 here. Essential quality is the highest of them at four. If he wins the Breeders' Cup Classic well, could he end the season at number one? Yeah, I think definitely because of the depth of his talent. I think it will be, it, it will be an argument for some Basilica because the two are not won't be that closely connected, but It'll be interesting to see what's also involved in the finish with essential quality, because that's really the determinant of a race. And we yes. all look at it beforehand and say, oh, it's going to be great. It's packed with stars. Think of the arc, for example. But if, if 
essential quality wins from a long shot who was basically unheralded and ranked sort of 350 in the world, then then that's a very different thing to if he and Hot Rod Charlie were to pull clear. Now, imagine that scenario, Nick, because Hot Rod Charlie is a horse that not a lot of people are speaking about over this side of the pond, but his form stands up to the closest inspection. Once again, he has that Frankel factor on his side. Everything he eats, the form works out well. He's the horse that's got closest to beating essential quality of late since the Kentucky uh, Derby. And he's a very, very good horse, I think, who idles in the finish. So if he wins it, I think he is a contender himself as well. But essential quality, what a CV is put together. The Breeders' Cup Juvenile win. Unlucky in the Kentucky Derby. If you can finish his career and head off to Darley with a win here, it's one hell of a career. And he, and he adds to an amazing stallion roster that Darley are putting together globally. Four of the of the top twenty in the world line up in the Breeders' Cup Classic as things stand. Just a reminder: four essential quality, eight Nicks go, eleven Hot Rod Charlie, and twenty the much talked about Medina Spirit. Just before you go, James, I want to ask you about Nicks go. Um, yeah. Is he a horse you think can stretch his speed, or do you think he'll be undone by uh, pace pressure at Del Mar? I think he'll be undone by pace pressure, but this is a horse I've consistently underrated personally myself because he came from a slightly low uh, threshold to begin with. And I'm always suspicious of horses like that because of the idea of a portfolio that a horse is prior to your expectation about a race is weighted by what the horse has done before. So I've perennially been a little bit behind with Nick's go, but I fully recognize his talent now. And so does the algorithm. He's up to world number eight, three yeah. grade one wins uh, for him, or a race of grade one quality for him, two grade two. So this will be a sixth if he does it. You have to recognise him as a pretty serious horse if he does. Personally, I think I'd want to be uh, on the, the negative side with him, but I, I do respect what he's done. Uh, and Tanar was an interesting uh, candidate in the turf, clearly. She's going to start favourite for that race, uh, I think, uh, the reigning champion. The, the official handicappers and the thoroughbred racing commentary rankings are somewhat united as believing that Tanawa is just a little um, less brilliant relative to her peers than she was at the corresponding time last year. Yeah, I actually think that that's fair. But I think this race could put that all to bed. Now, if you remember 12 months ago, Tanawa came into this meeting on a real high and, well... She was devastatingly good in that race because although the winning margin wasn't wide, if you look at the pace and look at the final quarter that she ran to win the Breeders' Cup turf last year, it was sensational. Really impressive. Uh, she defeated Magic, who wasn't her best on that occasion, but nonetheless, it was a heck of a performance. Uh, I, amongst many, expect her to carry all before her this year, and she hasn't done it, has she? She's defeated in the arc. It's a great race she ran in the arc, and, uh, but she didn't win it. And that's the level I think she's set for herself. And that's why people are saying that they're just a shade disappointed with her 2021 campaign. It's, again, that old devil expectation that basically people are comparing her with herself. But I think she's going to get it done here. I think Dermot Well, he's a man I respect more than probably any other when it comes to preparing a horse for an international race. I think he'll have a spot on. Many years ago, in an interview he gave me when I was just a, a fledgling journalist, he promised me one day that he would tell me the secret to knowing when a horse was spot on in terms of something's objective about his blood picture or something like that. You know, he's never told me. 
So if Tarnawa wins, I think I might be placing a call. Well, thanks to James, to all my guests today. Uh, Rishi's still with me. And off the back of a great winner with Postilio last week, Rish, I'm hoping you're going to follow up. I think I will, Lucky. I'm that confident about moving light uh, for Saeed Bin Saror in the 340 at Newmarket. He's only had three runs in his life. Uh, he won two of them. And the first time, he absolutely thumped a horse called Theban at Leicester uh, in the summer last year. He's only... Uh, run last season. This is a seasonal comeback. I don't think that's an issue. He is trained by Saeed Ben Saror. Um, they've won, a lot of his horses have won off a, off a layoff. He looks really talented, and I hope that all that talent's still there. So it's a little bit of a punt, but it's a race full of, unex- uh, of, of exposed horses. He is one of maybe two uh, unexposed horses in the race. And he's also uh, half brother to, to Prince Bishop, um, who meant quite a lot to Saeed Ben Saror. And I think this horse might have a big future ahead of him, and I hope that he, he shows it today. Rishi, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Don't forget that Charlotte will be here at nine o'clock this evening with the Saturday edition. And Tom will be with you in the hot seat on Monday as I try and settle into Del Mar. I have no idea what time the podcast will be uploaded next week, but we will try and figure it out. And I promise you, you uh, will not miss a day. Uh, We will see you after the weekend. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.